Welcome to What Happens Next. My name is Larry Bernstein. What Happens Next is a podcast where an expert is given just six minutes to present his argument, and this is followed by a question-answer period for deeper engagement. Today's topic is, why won't working-class people take that damn vaccine? Our speaker today is Chris Arnotti. I met Chris 25 years ago when we were both trading emerging market bonds at Salman Brothers. When Chris retired from Salmon City Group, he took up photography and he took pictures of working class people and others who were troubled like drug addicts and prostitutes. And he took his work on the road all over the U.S. and then around the world. Chris started blogging and then he wrote a book entitled Dignity, Seeking Respect in Backroad America. The people who generally listen to this program are for the most part living in the front row. Our listeners have done very well in life. They've graduated from college, they've got a job, been promoted, and have had successful careers. The back row is the opposite. They did poorly in school, they work from time to time, and their careers go up and down, often at risk to the economic cycle and Chinese exports. Most back row people think of themselves as losers. I want to learn from Chris, why doesn't this community of working class Americans want to get vaccinated? And what can we do to persuade them to change their minds? And does this rejection of vaccines reflect an anti-elitism attitude? And why is there such anger and frustration with our leaders and institutions? With that, I turn to Chris Arnotti. Please begin your six-minute presentation. I'm Chris Arnotti. I used to be a bond trader. And for the last 10 years, I've been basically hanging out with normies, doing what is basically ethnography light, spending time in communities, mostly working class communities, what I call back row communities, which are people without high school degrees. I've been walking America. I walk sometimes 20 miles across the city. And in the, in the process, I often hang out in McDonald's, parties, Walmarts. I hang out in bars. I hang out on Applebee's and I talk to people. It's taking me um, into a lot of communities with high unvaccination rates. People tell me they're unvaccinated. I don't ask. They tell it to me almost as seamlessly and as quickly as they tell me their name or their occupation. It's become part of their identity. Being unvaccinated is very core to a lot of people. And in all this, I'm talking about people over 50. Being unvaccinated is not a light decision. It's a decision they've come to and they're sticking with. It's very core to their identity in a way that perhaps you might think about someone, someone's religion, and they're very, very proud of it. Who are these people? The demographics of the unvaccinated I've met, it's very similar to what I would call the non-voters. Relative to the U.S. population, uh, minorities are overrepresented. Everybody in this, in this demographic is basically somebody who I think um, you could describe, and I say it in a lovable way, as a loser. Somebody who's had a rough life, um, things haven't gone their way. They don't see themselves as having had a particularly easy life. Why are they unvaccinated? What I try to do is just let, let them tell me. I don't push them. I don't probe them. There's a massive mistrust in the system, elites or experts. In particular, there's what I would call a justified cynicism of, of the system as a, as a whole. And they view this as a way to kind of push back and make their mark and, and kind of like, you know, this is, this is their hill they're going to die on and, it's, and, and they're going to define themselves by it. Certainly, the, the kind of early COVID policy in particular, the whipsaw nature of it has contributed to their views 
the anvil that broke the camel's back was probably when public health officials said after, you know, three months of intense lockdowns that it was okay to protest. It was justified to protest. The inability early on to talk about the origins of COVID. People have a lot of common sense. They like, you know, hey, <laughs> there's a COVID lab in the city that it came from. Why can't we talk about this? So there was a lot of cynicism built around the policy. The elites say to do this, they're going to do the opposite. Complicating this analysis a little bit, there's another group of people, and these are people under the age of 50 generally, so their risk profile is different, is what I would call weightlifting bros. These are back row people, working class people who spend their life in the gym, on Reddit chat rooms, who have a, what I would call a very healthy mistrust of the, the nutritional system. I think the consequences of this is that there's going to be 20% of the population, roughly, mostly lower income, mostly poor, who are not going to change their mind about vaccination. No, ma no amount of um, carrot or no amount of stick is going to, going to get them to change. So I think policy needs to address this. There is absolutely no way that someone like me, an elite, is going to get them to change their mind. It's going to actually do what I call for pushing them into a corner and becoming doing what I call owning the stigma. You something you see in addiction. When people embrace being deplorables, losers embrace being losers. The unvaccinated are going to going to embrace their positions, dig their heels in, and actually probably make even more reckless choices. So the only way it can come from it is, is it has to come from people like them. And that's a big public outreach. That's going to require a lot of money. That means going into communities, basically finding, you know, the equivalent of the alpha male in a bar, getting them to change their mind through very systematic um, conversations, dispelling rumors that are out there, and, you know, topple one domino at a time. You're not going to get a whole chain of these to topple. A few weeks ago, President Biden said he's losing patience with the unvaccinated. How do the unvaccinated feel when they hear that their president is losing his patience? It's kind of like the deplorable comment. You know, it's just one of those things that um, is, um, you know, you, you might get a few people to change their mind. And again, it's very similar to the deplorable statement. It's just going to cause more people to, <laughs> you know, more. It's, it's giving the anti-vaccinated a stronger incentive not to get vaccinated. Don't make it political. Last week, Tim Bale from the University of London spoke on the show. Tim talked about Brexit. He said that for the first time, a substantial number of previous non-voters decided to vote. They thought this was the most important decision of their lives, and they voted in support of Brexit, and they became leavers, and they defined themselves as such. And Chris, now you're saying that being unvaccinated is a marker of self-identity. I understand why the leavers' decision can be a self-identifying trait in England, but why is not getting vaccinated an aspect of identification? I mean, for me, I identify as an American, as a Jew, even as a Chicago Bulls fan, but I don't identify as a vaccinated person. Why do you think the unvaccinated identify as such? A lot of vaccinated people have formed it into identity. You know, you go on the Facebook pages and I can certainly tell you the whole kind of theater around COVID is very much an identity in the vaccinated. It's very jarring because I spend my time in between two very different spaces. Think of me as a traveler who goes between classes. I have to learn the local masking dialect. If I go into a bar in a working class town, if I walked in with a, a mask, I immediately lose credibility. I immediately lose my ability to blend in. It's kind of a faux pas I can't get over. 
it's shocking to me to find out that similarly, if I walk in by accident, by accident without my mask into like an upscale coffee shop and, you know, and, and, and in a nice neighborhood, I get yelled at. I think there is a meaning gap in the United States, and that meaning gap is particularly true in the lower classes. What, what might have been given them meaning place, faith, and nation has kind of been dissolved over the last 30, 40 years, um, has kind of become less, of, less important, and there's this identity gap. I think I said recently, you know, if, if vaccination status is the peg you hang, hang your hat on, that's talking about a deeper fundamental problem that we have. We need other pegs. <laughs> we need the faith again. It's particularly troublesome for um, working class whites, working class blacks and minorities. We allow them to identify through race. We allow them to have ethnic pride. Working class rights, you know, are not allowed for for historical, for obviously historical reasons, to celebrate their whiteness, to celebrate their ethnic heritage. Maybe Polish can be proud to be Polish. Maybe Germans can be, but it, less and less than when me and you were children. And so they don't really have any avenue other than basically owning the elites as a pathway to identity. But the deeper question is, why are people identifying, you know, why, why are people willing to die on this hill? Are the unvaccinated saying something like, the disease is dangerous, but so is that vaccine? It's been a year and a half now, and I haven't gotten sick. I must have some kind of natural immunity. The majority, majority of them, I say, back into rationalization. But there is a healthy one-third that gets the rationalization by misunderstanding the risk profile. And that, again, that's complicated by the weightlifting bros who are out there with throwing stat data that fits them. Getting vaccinated for an athletic 28-year-old is a very different question than being vaccinated as a 60-year-old overweight guy. We can talk about misinformation and conspiracy theories among, amongst elites, but let me just tell you, when you go into these, these working-class neighborhoods, you hear some wild shit pretty regularly. I've heard someone literally tell me they think it's going to turn them into zombies. Someone said, well, Miss, Miss Betty got the jab, got a stroke, died. I'm sure that story has been making the rounds in this small town now. There's also the attitude you said, which I've heard people say, look, man, I've been working at the Walmart for, through this whole thing. I didn't get it. I should have gotten it. I must have got some natural immunity. 14 years from we're going to look back at those first eight months as completely fucking it up, uh, the policy class. Now, I'm not sure sure they could have done differently, but again, I can't, under, I can't underemphasize how much credibility was lost when after lockdown, 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 you can't barbecue, you can't go to church, you can't go to funerals. Oh, you should protest. You have to do it. You have to go protest. People, again, normies, so to speak, they, you know, things filter down to them slowly, whatever. Like, you know, they're busy. Life is crazy. They're not, they're not news junkies like us. But every once in a while, like, something breaks through the news cycle because it's just so jaw-dropping. Like, and that was a what-the-fuck moment. And I think that really hurt the credibility and the early, the politicization of the, of the, of the whole process because of the election also turned it into a, a political hot potato. The way a lot of people look about politics is, is like the way most of us look at sports. We're, we're, we, we're fans, we're not players. We don't have an active role in here. This is something they have an active role in. They can actually say, nope, I'll show your fucking ass. I'm not gonna get vaccinated. We hear that white working class Trump voters are opposed to the vaccination. Do you notice anything unusual about that clientele that's different than the others? 
my demographic by, by choice is skewed to the working class. The white working class in general voted for Trump and the minority working class didn't. And that's generally kind of how it plays out in the vaccination sense. So the white people in general who are unvaccinated, you know, it's an overlapping Venn diagram, not by um, relationship other than both, you know, it's the same demographic. The minorities are overrepresented. Let's talk about African-Americans next. So Biden is their guy and they're on team Biden. And Biden's their leader, but he's losing patience. Does that matter with this community? While most African-Americans who vote vote for Biden and the demographic I'm talking about, they're mostly non-voters. And there's a lot of high-profile black athletes who are not vaccinated. While that doesn't necessarily change anybody's mind, that gives them a lot of like, you know, just another little nudge to support them. Are the medical experiments at Tuskegee still important? Or is this African-American demographic even aware of that history? They don't put it in the language of, you know, Tuskegee happened, therefore I have a cynicism towards the medical community. They say, they use us like lab rats. I have sympathy for the black minority community because there's not a lot of trust of institutions. You know, um, if institutions are telling you to do blank, they're not going to do blank. That's immediately like the suspect. Remember, Trump, Trump said to get vaccinated. Do you think if Obama did a national tour to encourage African-Americans to get vaccinated, would it have any influence? Or alternatively, someone like LeBron or Michael Jordan? No outsider talking head on TV is going to change anybody's mind. It's got to come from the community. Again, like the, the Trump voters just completely dismiss that Trump said to get vaccinated. They'll just like if you mention to him, they'll just kind of like gloss over. It. Oh, yeah, you know, he had to say it. He's a president or, you know, they put a gun to his head. You know, I really have trouble emphasizing how, how core it is to people, man. It's like it's like you got a dog with a Frisbee and he ain't going to let go. In your opening remarks, you mentioned that when you meet someone for the first time in a working class bar, that they give you their first name and then almost immediately they mention that they're unvaccinated. Why is that? Within the first three or four, you know, introductory statements, you new around here? Yeah, I'm new around here. Where are you from? Oh, I'm just from like five doors over. Oh, you know, I grew up here, but you know, you know, it's been rough ever since the COVID's happened. I mean, I, that's why I chose not to be vaccinated. I don't want to, I don't want any of that in my arm, man. I don't want that, system, that stuff in my system. What about you? I'm like, well, you know, I, I, I'm vaccinated. Why would you do that? I try my best to, to just listen. I'll say things like, hmm, you know, um, I don't know, man, like, you know, it sure seems to me like it's like it's a pretty, pretty, pretty simple thing to do. And, and, and it really dramatically, you know, keeps you out of the hospital, probably like that. It really sucked to get it and go to the hospital. And, you know, you, you have kids, right? Oh, yeah. Hmm. You know, you probably, you know, you don't want to want to you wouldn't want to die on the, with them. But, you know, someone someone will overhear the conversation and go, oh, no, but they put rat poison in that. It's very shocking to walk between these spaces, to, to walk, to hang out yeah. with people who are three times shot with antibodies and wearing masks versus I was just in a bar the other night in near Albany, real dive bar. It was all older locals sitting around in a, in a uh, circle tape bar. This young couple came in both wearing masks and everybody, yo, take off your mask. <laughs> you don't need to wear that in here. COVID policy very much favors the elites. This isolation just takes away one of the core, core, one of the few core meanings that the back row has, which is hanging out, being a regular, being a local, going to your bar, going to the vape store, going to the bowling alley, going to the McDonald's, being a member of a community. When we took that away from them, we, we did a lot of damage to people. They don't have the, the words, the language, they're not going to use the language I'm using here, but they would tell you that the whole 
politicization of COVID was started by the elites in the first place and targeted them. So this is their only way to get back at that. I recently listened to your presentation from episode three of What Happens Next. It was on April 5th, 2020. And you said it would be easy for me sitting in my big house producing a podcast while the poor are struggling. And if you put three generations in a trailer, somebody's going to get hurt. And then, Chris, you said, when I had you back on the programs like six weeks later, and there had already been violence in many urban communities, you told me, well, I hate to be right, but yeah, the violence doesn't surprise me because it was like a powder keg ready to ignite. You said that if there are nine people living in a room with only one bathroom, it just can't last. And if you know it's not going to last, if you know you can't follow strict six-foot distancing and living in these tight confines, do you have to rationalize your behavior and say something like, we can't do this, it's the conditions, and then they rationalize their decision? Yeah, I mean, I think very much so. Again, in their minds, this whole thing has been political and has been aimed at them. You mentioned in your opening remarks about elite hypocrisy. You know, you can't go to a funeral, you can't go to church, you can't go to work, but you absolutely must protest. And that's bullshit. When people see a clear double standard that plays out amongst race or class, that's when politics really, that's when real political anger is spurred on. I remember when I heard the announcement, I was like, what? I'm for racial justice, I'm for political protest, but the, the 180 degree pivot by scientists an epidemiologist who are overstepping their boundaries and saying now racism is a greater epidemiological threat that therefore most people tried to follow the social distancing rule because nobody knew what was going on early on. You know, but the flatten the curve became like, remember they filled in a skateboard park with sand so kids couldn't play outside. I mean, they blocked the baskets on playground basketball courts. Those things matter to people. If you hang out in the South Bronx, playgrounds is like the only public space where people can get away from things and hang out with their friends. You can't take that away from people without having awful consequences. So I think they view it as being political all the time. And so it locks them into kind of a mindset of whatever the establishment says, whatever the smart people say, I'm going to do the opposite. What is causing their antipathy to the elites and to their advice? If everybody's felt like their boat was rising, if, if, if their towns weren't falling apart, if they didn't feel like, feel like losers, then I think there'd be a lot more um, public trust in institutions. There has always been a back row America. I mean, there's always been losers. There were hobos in the 30s. Remember that drunk on the Andy Griffith TV show? The golf now is, is much more easy to see. After the 2016 election, I looked at what I call OOT counties, Obama, Obama, Trump counties. I had almost been to all of them. They were like 43 or so. Not because I knew they were going to be OOT counties. I didn't know it was pre prior to the election, but because of um, issues of, um, of addiction. One of the things that was also stood out about, they were all counties that either population had held steady for like the last 20 years or was dropping. So there was this outflow. When your community is kind of building up and doing well and you stay, that's different than when you stay and you're always wondering, should you have left? You look at the downward trajectory, you see people saying, hey, just leave, man. Um, it, it feels bad to be there. We have an educational meritocracy. We sort people. If you fail in that system, it's your fault. Therefore, you're the loser. Like in the old system, like a monarchy, you were a peasant, but hey, I can't do anything about that. I got my place and it wasn't my fault. 
now it's like we're always moving, always sorting. And so if you're on the bottom rung, the people at the bottom are losers and it's their fault. So there's a sense of real shame um, that we build into the system that makes people feel like, you know, like a loser. Is vaccine availability still a problem? Anybody who wants a vaccine can get it. Like there are pop-up vaccine clinics in Walmart plazas. Like you have to actively not want to be vaccinated now not to be vaccinated. There is nobody out there who is not vaccinated because they, they don't have the time or the money. Look, at, at some point, if people are not going to get vaccinated, we have to just move on. You mentioned in your opening remarks about using a carrot or a stick to encourage vaccinations. Should we restrict public spaces like going to a concert or a football game or using a public park? Do you think if we made a vaccination requirement for using public spaces, would that be a sufficient motivator to get people vaccinated or would that force them to dig in their heels even further? I think you're likely to see a version of what you're seeing in Austria now, which is the riots. It's going to be riots led by the weightlifting prototypes. How does this whole vaccination hesitancy fit in with the opioid crisis? How does the concept of, I don't want to have dangerous drugs in my body, jive with taking opiates or injecting fentanyl, but they won't take a vaccine? Or if the unvaccinated do get COVID, they desperately want to take the monoclonal antibodies or any of those new antiviral medications? I just don't get it. The framework it goes into is basically recklessness and rebellion. They have a different risk profile. They have a higher tolerance for risk. They take a lot of reckless decisions um, in what they eat, how they, how they drive, what they drink, how they live, how they work. And so, you know what? COVID is not as big a deal to them. In the first few months of COVID, there was an outpouring of enthusiasm and support for essential workers. And we had signs outside like, we love essential workers. And there was affection, at least among the front row. How did the essential workers feel about all this? There was a little bit of pride in themselves, like, hey, thank, thank you for finally. And eventually it was like, come on, man, just, you know, <laughs> just, just pay me more or, <laughs> or be a nicer person to me. Like, stop doing this. There was a short brief of like, okay, I'm glad people are liking us. But then that wear it off pretty quickly when they're like, can I just, you know, can I go barbecue again? Can I like, you know, go to my grandma's funeral? Can I go to church again? Um, can my kids go play in the, in the park? We end each episode on a note of optimism. Chris, what are you optimistic about? People are not going to lock down ever again. <laughs> like, you know, I, I don't care if there's a ninth wave that's like, you know, <laughs> that's like 97 times more deadly. People at some point are like, I don't care, man. I'm, I'm going to go and do my thing. Public policy needs to take into account externalities. And the biggest externality is how important community is to people. I, I think we're going to look 10 years from now and look what we did, especially to kids as having been cruel. I think when historians look back at the summer of 2020, at the protests that turned violent some places, at the outpouring of political marches, they're going to look back and say, kind of what I said at the time was, this is just a bunch of people sick of being locked in their houses. At least got to do it through epidemiologically uh, sanctioned protests, and others got to do it through non-sanctioned ways. People were just sick of being, were lonely, were sick of being cooped up, and just needed a release. I think everybody involved, economists especially, were very shy to talk about how many, how many deaths we as a society could All tolerate. Right. Public policy people didn't do that calculation. What is the risk here? 
how many deaths are worth the externalities that will cause other deaths down the road. And so I think the failure to kind of think more, more, more systematically let us do some things that I think in retrospect will cause more problems than they solved. Chris, thank you so much for joining us for a third time on What Happens Next, which ties a record held by Patrick Allett and David Costin. All right, that ends today's session. If you're interested in listening to a replay of today's What Happens Next program or any of our previous episodes, or if you wish to read a transcript, you can find them on our website, whathappensnextinsixminutes.com. Replays are also available on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, and Spotify. I would like to thank our listeners for their time and for engaging with these complex issues. Goodbye.